You're tuned in to the MTGG Cable Cast, 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 where they cover Magic, the Gathering Finance. All right? You don't know about it? You're tuned in right now and get ready to learn some shit. Buckle your seatbelts and light a blunt and get ready for the MTG Cable Cast, 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 starring Reptar and Thirsty, them onion head motherfuckers. Alrighty guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabalcast. And this week we're covering something a little bit outside of magic. Yeah. Uh, so it's no secret that Wizards hasn't exactly brought back big events. Mm -hmm. uh, Star City, while doing something with their buy list, hasn't really announced what they're doing, but it's probably something and we may talk about that on a future episode. Uh, and in the meantime, is there a way to kind of fill the void with shows? Yeah. So something that's similar to Magic took off during COVID in terms of pricing and popularity was sports cards. So we're basically going to get into what is, in my opinion, the easiest kind of show to get into, where you can potentially move Magic or some other TCG game that you may be involved to an entirely new audience. And basically, what is a sports show? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How is it different from your traditional magic vending event? Yep. And uh, we discussed this ahead of time, I think uh, a week or two ago when we were musing on topics, and we looked at the shows that we were seeing from a magic perspective, and TCG Con is doing one every other month. Star City has yet to announce any of their Q3 shows yet, I think, yeah. maybe even some of their Q2s, but they were picking up Velocity and doing one a month, and that's great. That means every other month you can have two shows and then in between there's one show and it's an scg but that doesn't quite really fill that void Biolists are great but doing work in person at events is still one of the premier ways to bring in cards so we need to begin to look into other opportunities beyond what we're immediately presented with and to your point watsi has brought back events but there's a certain amount of pro tours you have to i assume buy into dreamhack and the, the reason i were use the word assume there is because i don't know if they're bringing back tcg vendors only tcg vendors for yeah. san diego and dallas and that's it otherwise it's just rcqs right now so we're really looking to kind of change things up so to start out I just have some basic questions if I'm a vendor that's going to move into a sports card show. And the first thing I want to know is how many days do they usually run? Different Magic events run at different rates. You have GPs or Magic Fest if they ever come back that are three-day affairs, which allows me to set up my travel appropriately. SCGs are two days. Sports card shows? Generally, one, two, or three. Uh, okay. The one exception is the National which is basically sports cards version of Gen Con every year. Uh, it's also a show where like literal nine figures in cash changes hands over the weekend. But your local stuff is mostly going to be a day long. Okay. And the reason I say the local stuff is because that's honestly some of the easiest to get into. Mm -hmm. uh, you can literally just Google like upcoming sports card shows, upcoming, you know, whatever card shows. And there's multiple sites that have calendars as well as people to contact to get into them. Uh, so you can get in, you know, with one of those shows as easily as a phone call. And the one-day shows are great. The two- and three-day shows are phenomenal. Mm. And then there's 
something that's a little bit more interesting is there's two regularly scheduled shows that are every other month that are usually like 700 plus vendors each Damn. one in Dallas one in Chicago and they're on opposing months so if you can get into one of those even you know once every six months there's a potential of making a lot of cash if you're invested into the right vertical and there's an opportunity there in the market okay now do these shows usually follow the same set of hours? Like if you're going to go from one type of show to the next, are they usually roughly the same? Yeah, it's it's con hours, okay. uh, almost always. Uh, the one exception is some of your bigger like three-day shows. They'll have what they call a trade night, oh. and that's usually either Friday or Saturday. And what that is is, okay, the hall closes at 6. Mm -hmm. Whatever convention center, whatever hotel, whatever, where this event is set up, there's a three-hour like open in the lobby or one oh, of the smaller okay. rooms will be reserved for trade night and they literally just let people who didn't buy tables set up throw their stuff down on the table and people will come by and trade with them so it's kind of well, like dedicated backpacking hours exactly right. and it, it's it's awesome because you can't get that at any magic event you've never really been able to yep. but it's literally set up so that people who weren't able to get in because maybe they're not as established maybe they didn't call as soon or maybe they just don't want to fork over the money and want to sell stuff yeah get to set up and have an opportunity to do that which is really unique about sports shows because that again does not happen ever yeah. in magic uh, one of the other things i've been curious about is what is a booth setup like at your average sports card show uh, the way magic events are going as you and i have talked about and people have seen is that there are, are booths that use a lot of tech now for displays of various sorts for buying and selling. Is that where sports cards are heading or is it still kind of like this good old boys feel where it's just like a couple of guys around a table? So it, it, as wild as it is, it really is just a good old boys feel because most booths, the way they're set up, you have an eight foot table. You have two eight foot tables and that's it. In order to get an island in these events, because there's usually only two or three, even with 700 vendors there. Yeah. You have to be entrenched in the event. You have to sponsor the event. You have to be whatnot, okay. uh, which, you know, more on that later. But you have to be one of those established entities to really get that kind of swath carved out. Uh, for example, the Dallas show, which at this point is every other month and has almost as many vendors as the national and annual show uh, every two months. Beckett grading doesn't get an island. Damn. PSA doesn't get an island because they're just not big enough to get an island at an event like that which is absurd to yeah. think about but that's the reality of it hmm. all right so you met, you did mention whatnot that's kind of the, the last question i have in the general section is do people do box bustings on prem like specifically uh not ne or sorry specifically is the wrong word not necessarily for whatnot but we know how that kind of came about where you basically buy into the box you buy the team whether or not it's streamed, does that kind of stuff happen during, let's say, the regular con hours? Yeah, uh, it's actually much more common during the regular con hours. And something that's actually kind of interesting about it is that you'll have, obviously, whatnot set up there doing breaks where they are streaming from the event yep. as, hey, we're breaking at this event. We've got some special deals and people at the event can buy into the breaks. But there's also some of the like bigger breakers on whatnot will literally just walk around with a GoPro scanning all of the cases and like, hey, this is what these people have for sale. These are their singles. These are their sealed wax. Oh, okay. Does anybody want any of this? 
And all they'll do is they'll charge like 5 to 10% on the cost of the card, obviously, for the service of buying it and shipping it. Yeah. But it's a huge opportunity that, to me, I think only exists in the sports realm because you don't really get that in the magic realm because we have TCG player. Mm -hmm. If you want a card, you just go to TCG player and it's there. Sports don't have that. There's no go-to website outside of eBay. And eBay is, of course, beholden to whatever people upload to sell. Yeah. So you get a lot more opportunity to have, like... And, and it's interesting because the use of technology isn't centered on vendors. Mm -hmm. It's centered on the attendees. Huh. The most technology vendors are going to have is, obviously, if there's on-site grading, for sure. Uh, they're going to have their phones and whatever electronic payment method... But outside of that, very few vendors set up with, like, televisions. And the ones that do tend to be grading companies that are trying to get their name out there and show, hey, here's what our slabs look like. This is what our grading looks like on down the line. Mm -hmm. uh, and it creates this very interesting dynamic where those breaks do happen. But it's the box breaks, but also the non-traditional of, like, hey, I'm doing a break on whatnot that's just me live streaming every booth at the event buy stuff. Okay, that's interesting. I I feel like I've seen people doing that for their own content creation at Magic events, but yep. they're not there to sell. They're just there to record what's happening at the GP, the Magic Fest, Yeah, whatever. Like, oh, just... hey, here's this vendor I know from before. What's going on? And just chat with them. Yep. Whereas, you know, it's, it's about brand establishment rather than actual moving of liquid capital. Yeah, okay. Um, so switching gears a little bit and now trying to get into some of the nitty gritty, some of the questions that I, I've come up with as a vendor looking to move in. The first thing I want to know is, are these traditionally sell shows or buy shows? And what we mean by that is, are you there to sell cards and come back with the most amount of money possible, not really looking to buy? Or are you going there to buy everything you can and try and come back with the least amount of money possible? I.e., are you pushing inventory or are you restocking? Uh, the short answer is yes. That's what I thought. Um, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, you kind of get a feel for how your inventory works at any given show. Mm -hmm. Because some shows, you may bring a lot of cash and not a lot of inventory, and you barely spend any cash, but your inventory's gone. And sometimes the opposite happens. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of depends. Now, the thing that I, I think is important is... You know, without an online marketplace, customer profile, which we talk about in Magic as like an LGS and a backpacker, is so much more important in sports mm. than it is in Magic because you don't have a go-to marketplace to move this stuff. Uh, the other thing that's interesting to me is, you know, sports, you know, there was an episode a long, long time ago we did in our first year uh, where we talked about what a mature market looks like. Yes. Well, sports is definitely a mature market. I mean, the Mantle SGC slab that sold last year set the record at like 15 mil with a buyer's premium. The world record Lotus just sold for 500K. So we're a ways off from that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also the kind of thing where when you talk about, I want to move inventory. Um, okay, moving inventory at some of these shows is selling one card for 20 grand. In other shows, it's selling a bunch of fifty to hundred dollar cards. Okay. Uh, likewise, picking up inventory, same deal. Some people know like certain shows locally, certain shows nationally. It's just like Magic. Well, this stuff does really well here. Hmm. Indy's always a good Magic show. Seattle has the potential to be an insane Magic show because any one of those, a Watsi employee, can come in and blow out all the cash in the room, and it doesn't matter. So, 
having that knowledge is a lot more important in this to telling, is this a show where I'm acquiring? Yes. Is this a show where I'm selling? And if I'm selling, do I have to sell everything or do I really only have to sell one or two cards? Because, you know, the thought of someone showing up with that Lotus in a GP booth is absurd to some people. Uh, but people show up at events with that in a sports card all the time. There'll be dozens of them in any given room in some cases. And you just kind of accept it. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit of both. And it's all determined, again, by the profile of the event, which unfortunately means there's times where you're just going to lose your ass. Yeah. Because that's the cost of starting. You know, unless you know someone that's been at that event, that's been doing that event, that knows what the clientele wants and what they like, and you can get a little bit of upfront information to help, you're probably going to lose your ass on a couple of events before you figure out, okay, this is what does really well here. Okay. Uh, prime example, um, just anecdotally, you know, there was a friend of mine, we went down to the Dallas show, we vended together, uh, and he brought a bunch of Japanese Pokemon stuff because, well, that's what he had. Uh, and I will say this, in terms of markover or crossover from TCG to sports card markets, courtesy of Logan Paul and the influencer beast that has taken over the hobby, uh, Pokemon has an absurd crossover with sports, especially at the high end. Uh, every layman wants their Pokemon, you know, wants their Charizard 10, right? Yeah. But if you have old, like, sealed Japanese Aquapolis, some people are going to go nuts for that, and they will literally hand you the thirty to $40,000 a box cash on the spot. Like, it's nothing because that's what they're there for. So it's okay. it's very interesting knowing how to approach the shows of what should I bring, what's my audience like, what kind of crossover is there. Yeah, and you, you kind of began to answer the next question I have, which is can we make a profit at these shows if we only brought TCGs? Yeah, uh, I, I think the, the easiest way to do it is, so Dallas, which again is one of the larger regular shows, uh, it's $300 for an eight-foot table. Okay. compared to, okay. like, 2000 at a Star City for an 8-foot table. Additionally, you don't need a ton of people there. Yep. It, we, we literally have two-manned multiple booths at Dallas because that's really all you need for an 8-footer. And we still get breaks, we still get to walk around, we get to do all that. So you can certainly lose money there. Uh, and I would fully expect that your first couple events, you're probably, you know, you may lose your ass again. But yep. losing your ass when your cost out of pocket is 300 for a table and like 800 for a hotel room yep. compared to 3000 for a table, 800 for a hotel room that you have to get two hotel rooms for and all the transport and everything else. It's a lot harder. Now, again, the thing that I'll say is the big crossover is because of how much influencer culture has spread into the sports industry Pokemon's your biggest one. Yeah. After that, you've got your iconic stuff. Your, you know, LOB uh, from Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, Black Lotus, anything like that that's a little bit more iconic and magic is going to be a little bit more liquid. Okay. But I've also gone to the Chicago show and literally walked up to a booth that had Alpha Power slabbed and Alpha Basics slabbed. And I was like, wait, you guys, you guys do with this? He's like, yeah, we usually do like a few thousand every time. So it's definitely, the opportunity is definitely there. And most people I know at the indie shows also say, 
TCGs do fairly well there, be it yeah. Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, or Pokemon. You just can't roll in like it's a standard or a modern GP. You have to have, yeah. like you said, iconic or higher-end stuff. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. And so that actually basically runs directly into the next question, which is what kind of stock is commonly desired? And it is that iconic element to whatever game you're focusing on. High-end. Yeah. Um, I guess... The, the question that I had in regards to this, I wrote a note that said format staples, and that's something where it's just not like, oh, we're going to bring in a bunch of thought seeds. It's like, no, we're going to bring in a bunch of the higher end quality fetch lands and shock Yeah, we're going to bring in the expeditions, the, the masterpieces, duel, like the duels. duels. Yeah. yeah, any of the good reserve list staples, people in sports are starting to get very familiar with those. They're starting to know that this is an alternative investment vehicle that I can park money in that is actually a little bit more stable than the sports market because while you know obviously magic is prone to the whims of the masses that play it uh when it goes with you know sports fernando tatis got popped for juicing and his cards cratered by like 50 percent joe burrow tore his acl and his cards were down 60 percent across the board next year they recovered because he went to the super bowl but you don't have jace out here getting caught up in a scandal waving a gun around in an instagram live video and all of a sudden his cards are worthless yeah so some people see it as a more stable investment for them to try to get into and what i've noticed a lot in both you know vending these events and in just walking around when i'm there vending and watching interactions is the people that the stuff that moves is that iconic stuff because it's a lot of people saying, you know, I've always kind of wanted to get into this, mm -hmm. and I recognize this card. And the thing is, sports shoppers are savvy. A lot of them are just absolute sharks, just like the vendors. So they're going to know their prices. So if you have it priced appropriately compared to eBay comps, which is where a lot of this high-end stuff moves, yeah. great. You're going to do pretty well there because you can say, hey, I know this is a good price because I just priced it off the last few eBay sales. So it's a pretty good one. Now, the interesting opportunity that, that provides as someone who vends Magic or Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh! Mm -hmm. is most of those sports people are used to when they acquire a card from someone. Like, if you come to me as a vendor, uh, or I approach someone as a vendor, that vendor sometimes is used to paying 70 to 80% of comps. So if you come to my booth and I have a Black Lotus at 80% of eBay comps, but I know I probably paid 60 to 70%, you're way more prone to just snap by it. And I still make a decent margin on yep. it. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned sealed a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the, the Japanese Aquapolis set, right, for uh, Pokemon. For those that don't know, that set was released in 2003. Uh, in English, 2002 in uh in japan so that's what you know we're, so we're looking at basically the pre-modern era equivalent in, in magic if we're going to be looking at sealed for pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh and magic is there a specific type of sealed or era that does well so your you know vintage stuff vintage relative you know, to, to the, the state game, of the game yeah. and how long it's been out does really well. The other thing that's very interesting is, and this has just happened over the last couple of weeks, which is why this is kind of well-timed. Yep. 
I've had three or four sports shops reach out to me and say, hey, do you know where I can get collector boosters of Lord of the Rings? Because all of a sudden, serialized cards exist. Yeah. One of ones exist. So now people from sports are starting to get a little bit of an itch of, oh, here's some early serialized cards that I can maybe get into. And while those cards were worth, you know, a lot at first when they came out in sports in like 92, 93, they tanked hard and are now recovering again. Mm -hmm. So you have people that are like, all right, here's an opportunity for me to move into this vertical. Yeah. So it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Lord of the Rings set, because if it's getting this widely known to the general sports public, uh, that may actually have some pretty negative impact on the overall financial economy of magic. Yeah. Uh, if you're mad about your volcanic islands being what they are now, just wait until team owners and billionaires get involved in investing in magic and not just YouTube personalities. Yeah. It's going to be a nightmare. So we're looking at, like, let, because a magic magic-based audience, everything that has reserve list cards in it, that's fine. You can you can understand yeah. that that seal does kind of do well. There's the mystique around it, etc. The sets with masterpiece opportunity, so obviously you're looking at those. They're going to do well. My curiosity is piqued by sets don't, that don't really have that kind of mystique. So set aside something like Onslaught, which is basically around the same time as an Aquapolis set. Yeah. And I want to I want to think more about something in like I guess what we can would consider now the middle era of Magic, like Ravnica, original Ravnica City of Guilds, that entire block. It has the Shocklands and like some other odds and ends, but that's about it. So something from that era, is that something that you think would do well? So the stuff that I've seen from that era most often at sports booths is surprisingly Lorwyn block. Okay. And I don't know if it's just because it's what they've had laying around or it's what they were able to get affordably or what, but like Lorwyn, Kamigawa, Mirrodin era, like almost the start of the modern border yep. era, really. Uh, that middle age of magic does have a certain amount of liquidity to it as well it's not quite you know the price point of like an alpha box or something like that um you know or alpha flesh and blood which also has a fair amount of overlap with sports cards as does one piece mm -hmm. uh but it's there and it moves uh even in a primary you know there's a few booths at uh the kansas city show when that happens every three months that they're primarily sealed of sports but they'll usually have one or two cases of TCGs as well. And it's a lot of that middle age of magic kind of stuff. And I don't know if they turn it over or if they just don't put it out every day. But there is movement on those every time I go to that show where there is an amount of, OK, well, I remember seeing an Urza's Legacy box here yesterday and now it's gone. So either you sold it or you just left it in the hotel room and brought something else instead. Yeah. OK, so basically we're looking at kind of. Like so, a little bit of nostalgia. Reserve list, obviously, set that aside. So yeah, uh, and then anything that just has mystique for noted playables. So like I said, set aside onslaught cons. Um, original yeah. Zendikar has several asterisks for several reasons. Yeah. And just look at something like Rav block, Kamigawa block, and those might move for more nostalgia purposes than anything else, but. Yeah. Anything newer is probably not where you would want to be. Correct, yeah. Outside of, again, the 
masterpiece amalgam sets. that is yeah. you know uh lord of the rings but yeah and masterpiece sets yeah but those have that iconography of here's this incredibly desirable chase card yep. you know this this set has the big hit you you can get the big hit yeah so that includes brothers war as well with all the serialized odds and ends there. Yep. that makes sense okay so we mentioned this kind of in the is this a, a buy seller or a buy show or a sell show as a TCG vendor, I'm going to usually bring an amount of cash to buy with that I believe is going to be pinned to the number of players I expect at the event based on pre-sale numbers or my experience there previously. When it comes mm-hmm. to you know my first few sports card shows, is there like a recommendation for basically what my purse should be heading into the event? So I think a lot of that depends on the event itself. If it's like your local, uh, you really don't need more than like five to ten thousand dollars. Because the nice thing about your local shows, that's like your monthly or bi-monthly, is a lot of times it's going to be some of the same people through there. But the thing is, they're all local. So if you have a business card or something, or they have something like, "Hey, look, uh, I didn't bring the cash on me. I can PayPal you. I can Venmo you. I can Cash App you." Uh, PayPal's getting a little bit different because of the reporting function, and I can touch on that a bit later, but that's causing a drastic change in the industry, which it's not impacting Magic the same way. But um, usually five to 10000 I think, at a local event is best. Now, if you're going to, say, Dallas or Chicago or the Burbank show, probably fifty to $100,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're going to the National, there is no limit to the amount of cash yeah, you should bring. The limit. Uh, in 2019 or no, sorry, 2020, uh, I went to the national at Chicago and I saw a guy who had a Joe Burrow rookie patch autograph that he had stickered at $15,000 on the last day of the show. A guy comes up, points at that card and says, I have 6,000 in hand. Will you take it? And he says, yes, absolutely. Because he was out of cash to buy. Yep. So he was willing to take a loss on that card, presumably, uh, or wait, no, this was 20, yeah, 2020 in June. So he was still fine. Uh, takes it because the cash is more valuable than that card at that moment. Yeah. Cash is so much more king at this. And I guess I'll cover it now because the PayPal reporting changed because 99% of sports vendors are just doing it as a side hustle. It's not their established business. They probably do have an LLC set up, but that doesn't mean they want to report all their income. That's true. So that cash is significantly more valuable. Uh, you know, 5000 at a sports show does not spend the same as 5000 at a Magic show. Mm-hmm. Because everybody knows everybody's prices on every card at a Magic show. You can take the same card to 10 different vendors, and you may get 10 different prices, and you may get 10 people that just straight up no sir you on it, because they just don't have an interest in it. So you get to be a little bit pickier with it, and that's why you can bring a little bit less and still be okay. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd say between 5 to 10 is probably what I'd start with. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you, you, we touched on you know the size of the booths and kind of what goes on around them earlier. That the, the cost is fairly reasonable. I assume it scales up from the local all the way to nationals. Yeah. Some kind of magnitude. What are add-ons like power or internet for these kinds of shows like? Is, are, is power even offered? Uh, yeah, 
Uh, power, power is offered, especially at the bigger ones. Uh, you know, they'll do it at actual like hotel convention centers and stuff that are used to running stuff like this. You know, it's similar to when you go to Gen Con. Uh, you may not see it at every booth. Every booth has power when you go to Gen Con. They find a way to wire it. They get it under the carpet. Whatever they have to do, mm-hmm. you've got power. Uh, as for Wi-Fi, it is provided, but it's the exact same as I would tell everyone at like a GP. And that is bring your own. Because yeah. the convention Wi-Fi fucking sucks. Got it. Okay, so you're stuck. And whatever their pricing is is basically what you're going to pay as a vendor. There's no, not going to be yeah. any kind of uh, other network or other pricing, which makes sense. So you just have to figure out if you want it. Um, now, I will say at some of the local events, Wi-Fi is free. Yeah. So yeah. it's a lot easier. Whereas, you know, you go to like the Dallas or Chicago, they do charge for it. But at the smaller shows, it's almost always complimentary. Yeah. So uh, this next question, again, we answered pretty much up top, but a lot of it was related to a smaller style show. So I'm curious about how it scales up. Uh, how large are booths in general and how much staff is recommended? And as somebody coming from the magic world, this definitely scales up in event size The uh, because you need more space for more display so you can share more cards you also need to have a dedicated buying area with one or multiple people and again in a magic show because they generally run longer you want to have two like two people is scary you would like to have three and one person floats then as you scale up to four three are dedicated the fourth floats and it allows you to just continue to grow your booth and give everybody time off during these very long days that you have as sports cards shows generally the run on con hours, you can scale a lot of that back. But yeah. So if we start at the local, we're looking at like booth size is your standard like eight foot table. Yeah. Basically, you may you may get stuck with a sixer that has like a four behind it for like a shelf or something. Yeah. But ninety percent of the time, it's going to be your standard eight. Uh, now, as you scale up to the bigger shows, um, it, it's kind of the opposite of what you would expect at a magic show. Uh, at the bigger shows, like Dallas, I would never run an eight foot with less than two, and I would like to do it with three. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had two tables, I'd be at five people, uh, four to five easily. Okay. And, you know, basically every table you add after that you know after the third it's one and a half to two people every table and the reason you do that is because for example the dallas show gets like 10 to twenty thousand people through the door so compared to a you know gp where you've got two thousand people it's absurd considering you know you've got nothing but vendors there yep there's no gameplay happening it's just literally that many people going there to shop so you need to have the staff, not just so that you can properly serve your clientele and customers, but literally just so they don't lose their minds and they have free time to do stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, that they can get a break, that you can have someone go to the bathroom and it doesn't matter, that you have someone cover, hey, uh, I just need to go take a smoke break or I just got an important phone call. I've got to do something here. And having that ability is just so so nice to be able to provide for your employees and that's why i think staffing scales much quicker based on the event uh you know additionally you know i hey i did a local event with three tables and two people Mm -hmm. it was fine 
Yeah. I, we were both able to take breaks. But if I had two people at the Dallas show, even though it's much shorter hours, we would have both gone back to the hotel and passed the fuck out right away because we would have been done yeah, because yeah. of how busy it was. Yeah. So uh, to give people an idea of what the floor layout is like, because a lot of people are used to magic shows where you have you'll have islands sometimes that are just in the middle of the room and then the majority of your vendors are on the sides. Uh, con booths are usually in pens. So you have your tables up front and then you have these like little, they could be curtain walls or maybe like half walls that basically separate you from the next person. For a sports card show, what is the layout like for for these booths? When you have an eight foot table or you have two eight foot tables, what is the rest of the row like? Are you more like a con where you're in these little pens? So it's... It's a mixture of a con and target. So right. you've got your aisles where it's just, all right, in bigger shows, it basically is like target where you've got one half of the store and the other, and there's a big line down the middle. Yep. And basically you have, when you go down the big line, there's an outside around everything. And then each line has tables. And it's basically like a row of tables, just eight foot lined up across from each other. And either end is capped off by another table. And periodically, you'll have, like, a four-foot gap in there just so people can come and go. Mm. If they need to leave, they don't have to, like, move a whole table or anything. But it usually is – it's set up like pens, but on a much larger scale, where it is, like, walking into a Target or a Walmart, and you've got, okay, well, here's, you know, section A over here, section B over here, C, D, on down the line. And the big difference being not really – dedicated to a specific item or category or vertical by area you can find stuff all over the place they don't organize all the vintage guys together all the hockey guys together or anything it's just kind of throw stuff at a wall and see where it sticks yeah, yeah but it is set up as like a large con where it is potted but more like long aisles okay so yeah it, it's different than my people might expect for if they're yeah. just familiar with magic events and if we were going to start these, you know, when coming from the TCG world where we need to be out there, we need to be, our tablecloths need to be branded, our, our shirts, whatever, paraphernalia need to be branded, we need to bring our banners, etc. Is brand recognition, even if we're staying in region, a powerful tool? at these shows or are people just more agnostic and just looking for the cards they want at the price they're looking for so this one's kind of tricky so brand recognition is important uh because there's a few you know i'll draw some analogs uh david adams which you know yep. people at the higher end of magic know steet as the guy for david adams uh david adams has been like the number one brand in sports cards for decades you've got steel city You've got Blowout, and you've got Burbank. And those are like your Card Kingdoms, your Star Cities, your Channel, when Channel wasn't around, stuff like that. Now, the brand recognition below that is basically, hey, uh, I recognize the individual. Uh, it's God. way more about the relationships and sports with people, about the impression, about the dealing with one another that actually makes a huge difference. And that's what people shop with. Uh, prime example, 
there was a guy, uh, he's local here, deal with him all the time now. Uh, our first interaction was really pleasant. Second interaction, I was having a terrible day, and I was just incredibly rude. Uh, was was not nice or anything. Next time I saw him, I made it a point to apologize to him and everything. He comes and sees me every single show now and sells me a card and buys a card from me. Hmm. Just because that relationship was so important. Uh, and now even when I've worked, you know, another booth at a show, he still come up to me, even though it's not for the store I work at and been like, oh, hey, uh, you know, it's, it's good to see you. How are you doing? Everything else. It just makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. Uh, and it is. It's a lot more based on the relationship as far as the brand recognition goes. And it's a lot more individually based. Okay. The company does matter because obviously Dave and Adams hit parade, whatever, is still Dave and Adams. But if you're not those guys, if you're not the Star City or the channel, there isn't like a Tales of Adventure that yeah. you're going to interact with on a regular basis. It's going to be one or two guys that you're like, oh, you know what? I actually really like this guy from last time. Let's check him out again. Okay. And that's way more important for brand recognition. Okay, got it. And then the last question I have is, are there are the other shows that are similar to sports card shows that we should keep an eye out for? So this is one that's actually really interesting. So I don't know uh, if it's nationwide, uh, but there's one locally, and this is something that this specific show is what I'm saying. I wonder if this is nationwide. I know there's similar shows all over the place, but uh, at shows like toy shows, the one here is called Toy Man. Yep. Um, and it's great because your audience is literally kids. Yeah. It's, you know, people that grew up in the 80s and 90s uh, that have this nostalgia for the toys they knew when they were growing up with. That has a ton of opportunity for TCG vendors. Uh, because, look, you can bring Magic, you can bring Pokemon, you can bring Yu-Gi-Oh! You can bring the fucking Transformers cards. There's going to be people there that will probably buy them just because there's Transformers. Transformers on them, yeah. Be because that license matters to them. Yeah. And that's not something you're going to get at any Magic event. You're not going to get it at any sports event, but it provides an opportunity to not just have your TCG market available to you, but also the toy market, mm -hmm. the nostalgia market, the I'm in my late 20s, early 30s with disposable income market, and I want to relive my childhood. So when stuff like, you know, uh, Walking Dead comes out, you have a little bit of appeal there. You can sell that secret lair there because people know it. They recognize it. That's a brand they're there to collect stuff from. Got it. Uh, you know, if we ever get a Game of Thrones crossover or whatever, you know, there's just a lot of opportunity for crossover. And I'll say this. This is probably the, those kinds of shows are the shows that Wizards should be marketing towards if they want their audience to be what they say they want it to be. I They... It just should be that way Got it. Uh, because they have that broad appeal. If you want your magic fests to have broad pop culture appear, uh, appeal, appeal. Yeah. go to events like this because that's where you get it. That's where you get the exposure and the crossover because I maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I am. The Dungeons and Dragons crossover didn't work out so well. Uh, so you may want to try going for these other opportunities rather than just saying, hey, we've got Transformers in our game. Try to market yourself to the events where Transformers toys, your toys, are being sold. Yep. 
but that's an aside because I hate Wizards of the Coast. My apologies. No, I it's fine. Track there. That, that's a good point. Um, like, I'm sure there are toy shows up here in New England on the whole, but they've never been local for me. So it's never something I've really thought about. And I don't actually know anybody that vends them. It's just every now and then I know somebody that attends one. Or I don't know how often it happens, but there is a retro video game convention in the greater Albany, New York area. Yeah. And I assume that is also something that happens. That's another really good one. Yeah, and you can move in with some of your older stuff too. You know, that's a different crowd. That's like 70s through 90s where people are looking yep. for the specific hardware. And, you know, you have the opportunity to market some odds and ends that definitely do cross over into that. You mentioned the Transformers stuff. Well, that's a, an early to mid-80s thing, right? Yeah. Especially with a lot of the art that they chose. It hits that specific era. Um, that's not like the My Little Pony stuff really made it out that far, but if you want to go sell your glut, that is an opportunity too as well, because again, that fits the that vintage game stuff. All the crossovers Watsy's working on definitely works out well into the toy realm that you're discussing, and it is yeah. also that right age range too. You know, the glut of people that will be at those events are the ones that were around when Magic started, when Pokemon started, when Yu-Gi-Oh! started, and now, like you said, have that disposable income, which is a great yeah. look. It's like I said, it, it's familiar to me because every now and then I know somebody that goes to one. It's unfamiliar because I've never advertised them because if, it, if they happen around here, like yeah. locally to me. <laughs> so it's a, a very good call out. And as somebody who's looking to move into sports cards as a vendor, there's definitely like some more minute details that I'm going to be looking for, but a lot of that's going to come from more people at the show or the the crew that's helped the the crew that's helping me get set up and like locate an appropriate starting point it never seemed like the barrier to entry was too high with tcg cons floating around for me that would probably be the first experience i would want at a sports card show because that gives me the opportunity to see what a sports card audience is like while maintaining comfort in the area that i know i can yeah. still serve the audience that i know and build a little bit of a knowledge uh foundation by talking to some of these guys and try and start moving that way. But it shouldn't be something that I'm afraid to do because I don't have experience in that realm. It definitely should be yeah. something that I'm looking to expand into, especially if there's opportunity. So exactly. It, this is a, a good topic that we, you know, we wanted to cover because this is, it is a similar market. It is a similar vertical. It's just extending yourself into it. The opportunity is there. It is, inexpensive to establish yourself at an event like this but it's much more expensive to actually run the machine yeah startup cost is a, a lot much higher especially yeah. when we discussed how much you would want to bring even locally i can yeah. show up to a local event here be, with between one and three grand for a magic event and and be fine yeah exactly yeah. and because a lot of these events are sell events they're not buy events i know yep. what i need you know and you'll build that knowledge, you'll build that opportunity. You just have to be willing to do it, willing to spend to do so. Yeah. So before we cut out into picks, is there anything else you would like to discuss? Uh, no, that's uh, that about covers all the basics for sure. All right. So we're going to head into picks. And uh, this week I'm going to go first because I don't have a whole lot to say about my pick. It's another one of these like, yeah, well, obviously kind of cards. So, and it is infinitely foundational to the format on the whole so it's there's not a lot to say here 
So I want to save the air and space for you. The card I'm looking at this week is Damn from Modern Horizons 2. Damn, damn, damn. Yep. And Damn. Damn. Uh, this has been on my list since July of 2022 when Card Kingdom was buying 132 at $1.08 and there were 391 unique prices on the TCG marketplace for a 244 market. Right now, Card Kingdom is buying 81 still at $1.80. I think they upped it to 83 and when I finished my notes, they were buying eight set foils at $2. They're now buying nine at $2, so at least that number's gone up. And on TCG Market, there are 329 listings, so that's gone down a little bit. And there was a market price of 285 when I finished my notes. Now it's over $3 for market. And I've had the damn graph up this entire time. And if you notice, it's just been flat with a little bit of movement towards the end, which is why I'm looking at this card now. So, like I said, this is foundational to the format. So when you think about it as a playable card, there's nothing more to say than yes, this is a highly playable card in the commander format. Um, yep. If you don't know what it does, it's very simple. It really has no text for two mana. It has the same text as Wrath of God for the same cost as Wrath of God. It's a sorcery that costs double black and says destroy target creature. A creature destroyed this way can't be regenerated, and it has overload for two and double white, which turns it into Wrath of God. You replace target, the word target, with the word each. Destroy each creature. A creature destroyed this way can't be regenerated. That's Wrath of God. There's like a one word difference because they retemplated it retemplated it several times because it had the original keyword for bury on it but other than that it's the exact same card so across the format it's played as basically wrath with the upside of being unconditional creature removal for two black mana compared to three and yeah that's a little bit narrow but the backside is wrath of god which is just pure upside this is a core card to decks that can run it and it's in the top sorcery section uh, for EDH Rec for the last two weeks, two months, and two years. It's just outside the top 10 in all of those. And this is just kind of really silly to discuss Wrath of God. And it seems like people are obviously playing this, but the price just hasn't caught up yet. And that's why we're looking at this now. We're finally finally starting to see this little bit of adjustment on the open market. Bylist has been steady for almost a year and supply is draining across both so we want to get in now because this card is like i said <clears throat> foundational to the format it's just outside the top 10 sorceries for the last two years and it's not even a year old as far as the timeline is concerned uh, ck was <clears throat> actually out of stock across all variants of the card damn and they have restocked with eight set non-foils one retro frame foil and one set foil that's it they have 10 copies of this card total that's why they're still buying 80 as people continue to sell to them just gone if we were to buy in today there is opportunity to exit to buy list now and in the next couple of weeks the tcg low is literally the ck buy list but once you add in shipping you're going to lose a little bit even when you go to credit but I expect that opportunity to dry up quickly. And we can see that in the TCG marketplace when I bring up the prices for DAM. We jump from $1.80 to 245 pretty quickly. And from there, it just kind of scales towards $3 in the next like eight to 10 vendors. So we lose this arbitrage opportunity. 
I think the true time to exit is in a few months down the road, maybe towards the six month mark when the open market quantity dries up as well, which we are seeing. Sales Velo overall is low across all variants. It's, when I was right taking my notes, it sold uh, about 14 copies a day for the set non-foil. And I expected this to stay constant until people realize that the market is draining or we see this in a content creator stream. But since I wrote that, the Velo over the last couple of days has actually doubled and we're seeing close to 30 copies sell a day now. I can't explain why. This is so popular according to Rec, yet sees such low churn, but here we are, we're getting ahead. The reprint equity on this, I think is tied entirely to Watsi's desire to upcycle the overload mechanic on a four mana value non-conditional wrath, which I believe is close to zero in a standard set. So we are very well insulated on this. Buy quantity, I bought 16 of these in October, 2022. The point was to stash them away until the market price overtook my buy-in and we finally gotten there. It's been a slow creep, but I would suggest buying in at a floor of eight and a ceiling of your comfort level because these will churn from your binder slowly at first, ramping up over time. So there's definitely some overhead costs in this, but there's definitely going to be some very easy churn on it in time. And that's all I got for damn. I like it a lot. I've multiple times on this cast said I love modal spells or spells that have some kind of choice involved that you yeah. make. Uh, this occupies two slots with one card, which is always good. Uh, it's, again, being such a foundational piece of EDH, while only having existed for a year, is pretty wild. Yeah. Um, it's also the kind of thing that I think as we get more and more focus on multicolor type commanders and decks because let's be real we haven't really had anything mono come out no outside of something that's contributed to cedh in some level uh you know in a while mm -hmm. so i i think this card is great i also think you're getting to the point now where people have kind of forgotten about mh2 uh outside of the elementals and all the cards that should be banned out of all the eternal formats that they're legal in uh but this is, to me, one of the most safe cards from the set to invest in, because in terms of like overall power level, it doesn't, to me, seem like something that's ever going to get hit by the ban hammer. No. And it's great for casual and competitive play, because it does act as, all right, I'm going to kill your guy. If you are combo-oriented on like Hermit Druid, it gives me a piece of removal for that. Yeah. Uh, if you're going wide with tokens, I can kill them all. Just like it a lot. Yeah. The, the worst part about this spell in comparison to Wrath of God is that the color identity is Orzhov instead of Mono White. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. It is... Like, but it's Wrath number three if you're in Orzhov. Correct. Uh, it's at number two because Day of Judgment is worse. Well, you get Wrath and Damnation are the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I keep forgetting about Damnation despite the fact that I play it all the time. So, yes, it, it is number three. <laughs> number yeah. four is Day of Judgment. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's... It is solely really only beaten out by damnation and supreme verdict those are the only other cards that are comparable to to damn in my mind that are better than damn because again the color identity is orzov not a mono color <clears throat> and it is counterable unlike supreme verdict yes. that's it 
like the, but those are like your four top your your top four raths in this format yeah. for four mana or thereabouts. Like end hostilities costs five. That's the one I think that gains you life, which is like pretty choice. Yeah. But again, it costs five. There's also time wipe, which was a pick of mine a while back that costs five or six or something like that, where you get to save one of your creatures. That's surely on the list, but it's not nearly as close to the top as Dam is. Exactly. So. Uh, I am going for a card that is only interactable with the second half of Dam because you can't target it with the first half, and that is Karmic Guide. Yes. Now, Karmic Guide is kind of an interesting one. So, it was reprinted recently in Modern Horizons 2. But, if you take a look at the stocks graph, something very interesting happened when it was released in MH2. It held its price for the Urza's Legacy variant. It held it. And then, after a couple months, it started going down. Now, the reason I'm picking this now, when we have a floor of about 249, which is a little bit below, or a little bit above the all-time low, is Samwise the Stout-Hearted. So, Karmic Guide functions as a reanimation piece, as a value engine, as a combo piece. Uh, if you're in any kind of graveyard-based combo, and hey, uh, for those of you that have been following Twitter, you know Cephalid Breakfast has been kind of a thing. Guess what that deck used to run? Karmic Guide, because it was based on graveyard shenanigans. So, Samwise the Stout-Hearted, Flash, when it enters, choose up to one target permanent from your graveyard that was put there this turn. Mm -hmm. Return it to your hand, then the ring tempts you. Well, the reason this is relevant is because of Echo. Uh, you can use Karmic Guide as a value piece, get the reanimation, and then not pay the upkeep, and then it goes to the graveyard. Well, you can flash Samwise in, and then you can get it on back and reuse the whole engine. Now, this is good if you're in a very heavily creature-based combo list. Uh, you know, anything involving Hermit Druid would be a good one. Anything involving Karmic Guy or involving Kiki-Jiki, because it gives you extra redundancy and extra ways to interact favorably with removal. Uh, it also lets you blow out removal early and then recur the card for later, mm. because if I know you have two pieces of removal in your hand and I can only save from one, I may want to blow this one out. Great, I'll use Samwise to get it back after you use the removal on something else. It just adds a really good play around to it. And I think that when the Lord of the Rings set hits, this kind of interaction is going to get some social media attention, be it a content creator, be it Twitter itself, be it Marrow's Tumblr, whatever the case may be. And I think that now, when we're at close to the all-time low, would be a really good time to buy in, especially considering, as we mentioned with Dan, people have kind of forgotten about the MH2 cards that aren't the elementals or any of the cards that, you know, have been or should be banned. Uh, and it's just a really good look. Now, the thing is, in terms of quantity, this is just an EDH card. That's all it's ever going to be at this point. So anywhere between, I'd say, at this price point, 10 throw them in a box, forget about them, to whatever your comfort level will be. Now, in terms of turnaround, I don't think it's going to be right when Lord of the Rings releases that you'll start to see this card get some movement. I think it may be a month or two after that, which is going to be kind of interesting, because that's holiday time. But the stuff that usually goes down during holiday time is the reserve list stuff. It's the higher end. It's not your 2 to $3 cards. Karmic Guide is the kind of card that you can just go into your LGS and pick up 
or go on TCG, and it may see a little bit of bump during the holidays because it is so affordable because people get their Christmas money, and they'll just go ahead and spend it on that. So I'd be looking at probably around a 9 to 11-month turnaround on this one. Uh, that's when I think we start to see a little bit more of a recovery, hopefully, in the overall economy as well. But that's when I think you can start to see stuff really kind of take off with this, where people are now investing in, all right, let's see what this actually looks like. Yeah. This is a card I'm interested in. Let's check it out. Uh, so I, I definitely think at that point, you'll start to see that flux hit where now we can liquidate immediately for profit. Uh, the other thing is this is a card that you should be able to prick up pretty easily. It's probably been left in trade binders for who knows how long. Yep. Or even in, you know, I don't usually stock my trade binder with it, but I'll have like my box that's like, here's my fat pack box of just chaff. It's all $5 or less, but it's stuff that eh, if we're a couple dollars off, you can look through this box and even it out. And I think that's a really good way to pick this one up. It's also something that in the meantime, just having it in your binder isn't the worst idea because you get exposure out there early in your local area and you can start to kind of maybe force a little bit of demand locally for it by mentioning stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, everything said about Karmic Guide, uh, I like. This is a card that I've had for a while because it was in Extended and then <laughs> Legacy. Yeah. But it was never a card I was interested in picking up for commander outside of the one i had because the price point on it i always felt was too high and i just didn't want to spend the money on it and when it cratered it just kind of fell out of the format like yep. it just takes this dive at theros which is when it's reprinted for the first time in commander 2013 it just yep. hard tanks after that and it just becomes this non-starter in the format after such a long time which is a shame because the card is so powerful, both as a value engine and a combo engine. And it's surprising to see that it is as cheap as it is for as useful as it is. And like it's in 7% of 1 million decks, according to Rec. So the self-reporting portion of the format is playing this card. I feel like 7% is really low, but on the other hand, people keep finding new ways to do dumb things with this card and if you were to look at the yeah. combo portion of this we talked about this before the show and just search for the word karmic guide there are 52 entries or 50 entries in the combo list and that's not all you can do with this card no and these are all two or three card combos prior to inter the introduction of uh comic uh karmic guide yeah it is something you will see like you said in binders all the time at vendor stations it is something you can put in your own binders to attract people to because this is a card that is at this point in time forgotten about yeah despite the fact that it is not a vestigial portion of this format there are 70,000 decks on rec that currently have this card in it and I think this is also similar to dam which is once people figure that out and they remove supply from the market, it'll catch up overall. Because it really, aside from Modern Horizons 2, there's no other large printing of this card. No. We go from Urza Saga in 1995 to 2013 with yep. no reprint. The and Judge then Eternal Masters. Well, the Judge promo might have come between there. Oh, yeah. But the Judge promo is the I most think it expensive did. version of this card at a whole $22. Yeah. Right? 
besides the legacy foil, but yep. that's star foil, so different world. Exactly. Then you have Commander Anthology, Adventures Commander Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, Commander Innistrad Crimson Vow, EMA, and MH2. So we see in like actually the last couple of years, Watsi renewing interest in this card. They're yep. out there. They're in decks that people can play with. People just seem to continue to forget about this. And I think there's a visibility problem with this card. And like I mentioned, yeah. with, with Dam, once the market dries or this hits a content creator stream, we'll see it pick up overall. And getting in now is definitely the place to be. I I understand the pick for Legacy because it is the only piece of original art for this card outside yep. of the secret layer uh, art. Otherwise, everything else uses the exact same art, be it either the Commander 2013 or the Judge promo art. Everything else uses the same art. But if I were just going to go in on this card, I'd probably take a look at the either the Innistrad Crimson Vow version or the EMA version, both of which are like 50 to 75 cents each. Yeah, that's fair. That That's the only really deviation I have on this pick from you. I'm a sucker for this card. The one I have, I think, has a red mark on it. And like, I just want to, I would replace it with the Urza's Legacy version because I would want that one in case I ever need to play Cephalid Breakfast in middle school. Or if God for, forbid that I'm able to combo this with Revelark in a constructed format, <laughs> again, I would want the Legacy version because that's Rex me. Rex or Lark pattern. Yeah. God, come back. That That's me. I, I would go for the Legacy version as well. But if people are going to move in on this card to just look to flip, I I think the, the EMA or the Innistrad Crimson Vow commander version is also the place to be it's minimal investment for probably maximal profit in terms of percentage but yep. overall dollar gain it's either for me it's either this one or the secret layer one in non-foil they're they're close to the same price about five dollars versus six dollars yep. and i think both of them are going to be a good look for the for all the same reasons that you went over that's really the only place where i deviate is just the version you want to pick up otherwise i think they're all all good looks yeah, I'm just a sucker for old border, so I'll always that, pick it when it's available. Same. That, that That's why I would want it, because I want it to match everything else. And if it's not going to, then it needs to look good in new border. And spoiler alert, I do not. They've been using the same fucking art for so long, I just don't want to see it anymore. No, it's bad. Yeah. Get it away. Hard to agree. So I I like the pick karma guide. It, it upcycled that card in my mind, and I'm glad we get to talk about some of the odds and ends that were, you know, that helped shape the format. That helped shape the commander. You know. Yeah. It's always good to re-up those, especially when Watsi. Boomer Carador. Yeah. Right. That was CEDH once upon a time. Yep. Especially now that Watsi's also buying into this card as well. Like they're trying to tell the player something. Like mm -hmm. this card is useful. You should probably investigate. Like yeah. Watsi can't hand you everything, but they can come close to slapping you in the face with a fish. And here it is. And this is Karma Guide. I I like the pick overall, and I hope people take a look at this as well. So. <clears throat> Anything else before we cut out this week? Uh, nope. All right. So for MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube, I am at Halt. I am Reptar. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you next week.